Hi and welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. I'm Paul Martin. I used to be a Presbyterian and then Pentecostal lay preacher. After studying the Bible and church history afresh, I converted to Catholicism. I'm talking today about what's a controversial subject by sceptics of Christianity, and that is, was Jesus really resurrected? Some uneducated atheists and other people claim that Jesus didn't even exist and that he was invented. And then others admit, yes, he did exist and he was crucified, but he wasn't resurrected from the dead. After all, scientifically, when people have died, they don't resurrect to life. And we, of course, as Christians, are well aware that people don't naturally resurrect from the dead when they die. However, if you have an all-powerful God, and an all-powerful God wills to resurrect someone from the dead, then it can happen. And so we believe that miracles of resurrections have happened in history particularly in the case of Jesus. But the purpose of this podcast is to answer the sceptics who claim that. There's also the Muslims who claim that Jesus wasn't crucified or resurrected. And so we're going to look at almost entirely from evidence from the first century AD and early 2nd century, so the earliest sources and what they have to say about Jesus. Firstly, we have the New Testament, which was entirely written in the 1st century AD. It's actually not one book, it's 27 books. Some say more than others. Some of the short letters don't say a lot, but we have four canonical Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. They're four very detailed accounts and they all testify that Jesus was crucified and then resurrected and then ascended up to heaven. We also find early Christian creeds, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 7. The tradition I handed on to you in the first place, a tradition which I had myself received, was that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that on the third day he was raised to life in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and later to the Twelve, and next he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still with us, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me. So Paul the Apostle is explaining that that was a universally accepted tradition among the Christians, that Christ died and was resurrected on the third day. And we have a multitude of other 
early Christian writings. We have the writings of St. Ignatius and St. Polycarp, who knew the Apostle John personally. And they knew people that had known Jesus. But it's not just Christian writings. We have Jewish writings. The Jewish writings, of course, were vehemently opposed to the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. But they're valuable because they testify and they agree with the Gospels in that Jesus existed and Jesus was rejected by many of the Jewish people. So I actually think the references in the Talmud are of great historical value because Jesus was not some conspiracy invented by the Christians He was an actual real person of which some people loved him and they wrote the Gospels. Others detested him and wrote what is written in the Talmud. But here's what it says. The Talmud in Tract Kalar 1b says that Jesus was born of menstruation and he was illegitimate. Uh, Sanhedrin 67a says that he was a seducer of the people, that is a spiritual seducer and a false prophet. And Beth Jacob 127a says he was a witch. He was involved in Egyptian magic or Egyptian paganism. And we note that Jesus did flee to Egypt for safety, his family, when he was young. And so that may have been part of the accusation that was made against him. And he was hanged on the eve of the Passover, Sanhedrin 43a. And what's significant is the Christian and the Jewish and the pagan and Gnostic communities, all of who testify to the historicity of Jesus, were opposed to each other. They never would have worked together to dream up some myth of some imaginary person. There is no ancient historian who disputed the existence of Jesus. Next we have the Jewish historian Josephus who wrote around about 93 AD Antiquities of the Jews. And he, t- he talks about the execution of John the Baptist in book 18, chapter 5, verse 2. And in book 20, chapter 9, verse 1, Josephus talks about uh, the death of James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, or the so-called Christ. He refers to that. And in book 18, chapter 3, verse 3, he refers to the Christians who followed a a wise man called Jesus. And he says this tribe of Christians has not died out to this very day. Then we have Pliny the Younger, who wrote about 112 AD. Pliny was a pagan Roman. And in a letter to Emperor Trajan... Epistulae, chapter 10, verse 96, 
he describes Christians and he says that they sung a hymn to Christ as a God. And he says they were moral people. They had strong morals, but they were also, in his opinion, stubborn and superstitious. And so that's a very good reference to the early Christians and to the existence of Christ and that Christians worshipped him. Then there was Tacitus just a few years later in 116 AD in his book The Annals, book 15, chapter 44. And he talks about how Christianity was started by Christ or Christus, the Latin word. And this Christ was someone who was lived in Judea and he was executed under the procurator Pontius Pilate and during the reign of Emperor Tiberius. Now Pontius Pilate was procurator from 26 to 36 AD and that's in the time when Jesus was crucified. And Emperor Tiberius ruled before, during and after Pilate's time from 14 AD to 37 AD. The next source we have are the Gnostic Gospels. I used to think that the Gnostic Gospels were worthless, but they're actually historically valuable because they testify that Jesus did exist, even from a community that was vehemently opposed to Christianity and Christianity opposed to it. The Gnostics were people who believed that the physical world was evil and the spiritual realm was good. And they believed that Jesus was a Gnostic teacher and Jesus did not have a physical body. They claim he was just a spirit vision. Now at this point in time, sceptics will look at this and they will say, well, okay, if you're going to accept that the Gnostic Gospels are historical evidence of Jesus, then which Jesus should we accept? The Jesus in the New Testament, the Jesus in the Gnostic Gospels, or the Jesus in the Talmud, which one is the true Jesus? To which I say, regarding the Gnostic Gospels, and I'd put this challenge to every atheist, and about 100% of them, if they accept that Jesus existed, would say, well, did he have a physical body of flesh and bones, or was he a spirit vision? And they would ex accept that he had a physical body. And the scripture makes it clear he was someone who was crucified, who was resurrected and who had a physical body. And furthermore, the New Testament was written by the companions of Jesus, his followers who were Jewish people of the first century AD. And they have a lot more credibility in knowing the true historical Jesus than the scribes and Pharisees who hated him and detested him and denounced him and 
more credibility than the pagan Greeks who were Gnostics and who said that the physical realm was evil, which is in complete contradiction to the entire scripture tradition of a God who created everything in Genesis and said it was good. And Jesus quoted the book of Genesis. So Jesus regarded the physical world as good. It was good but it, physically, but it was tainted by spiritual sin. And then there's another source we have, is the Mandaean religion. The Mandaean religion is a Gnostic religion that's native to Iran and Iraq. They're an ethno-religious community. They speak a dialect of Aramaic and they originated from Syro-Palestine. And they are thought to have originated from the first century or possibly a bit later, the first century AD. And they are followers of John the Baptist. But they reject Jesus as a false messiah. And they have a book called Haran Goeta, which is their history, and they have a scriptural book called Ginza Rabbah. The fact that they reject Jesus is sad, but once again it testifies to the historicity that John the Baptist existed, and so did Jesus. And if People reject Jesus as a false prophet, that's sad, but it nevertheless testifies that he existed. And the last uh, source, pagan source I'll quote, is Suetonius, who lived, who wrote about 121 AD, the lives of the 12 Caesars. And in Claudius, chapter 2, uh, section 24 he says that Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome because of a Christus and I'll read it the lives of the twelve Caesars Claudius section 24 he banished from Rome all the Jews who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of one Christus and this finds parallel in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. It says, Upon finding a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with Priscilla his wife, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to depart from Rome, he met with them. So we see that Roman history is confirmed in the New Testament and vice versa. And in Nero section 16, Suetonius mentions the Christians who were persecuted by Nero for what he calls their superstition. And around 140 AD, we have Aristides of Athens, a Christian writer, in his book Apology of Aristides, he referred to the four races 
known in the world, Greeks, barbarians, Jews and Christians. Greeks refers to all the people in the Roman Empire who spoke Greek and were pagans. Most of the Romans, even though they spoke Latin as their mother tongue, used Greek as the lingua franca of the Roman Empire. Barbarians refers to people who lived outside the empire, like the Germans and the Scythians, and couldn't speak Greek. And then the Jews were classified as their own group that worshipped one God. And the Christians were considered a distinct group from the other three. And that testifies to the impact Jesus had. Well, now that we've established that Jesus did exist and that he was executed under Pontius Pilate, we're now going to look at what's the evidence that he was resurrected. You know, did Jesus just get severely injured on the cross and he got taken down and he got laid in the tomb and then he regathered his strength, he rolled back the tombstone and knocked out the guards and recovered a day or two later and appeared to the twelve and gave them the impression that he ascended into heaven. And did he lie and deceive people and say, oh, I've been resurrected when he had just been recovered? Well, let's have a look at what he had to say. Well, Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that he was going to suffer many things, be crucified, and then resurrected, and that he had to do this to atone for the sins of the world. Crucifixion was a very violent and brutal punishment, and it was designed to ensure absolute certainty of death. There were hundreds of crucifixions carried out on Golgotha, the hill where Jesus was killed. And the Romans who did these executions were experienced in ensuring that the person being crucified did die. They just made sure they had a long slow, agonising, painful and degrading death. But they ensured that that person was dead at the end of it. Uh, Jesus cried tears of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke chapter 22, verse 44. And this condition wasn't known in the first century AD what it meant, but modern technology of doctors today know that it's a condition called hemohydrosis, where the body's capillaries leak blood and the body is greatly weakened due to enormous stress. So Jesus' body was already going into shutdown the night before his crucifixion, on the night of his arrest. And 
He was given, according to tradition, 39 lashes by Pontius Pilate because 40 was considered enough to kill a man. And sometimes the Roman floggings were so savage that when a man was being flogged, his intestines would fall outside his back. It's amazing that in and of itself didn't kill him. But Jesus was a carpenter. Carpenters were very strong and muscly in those days, and yet Jesus was very significantly weakened by the experience. And he was able to carry his cross, but not for long. Eventually, they had to get Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. Matthew chapter 27, verses 31 and 32. And when he was uh, suffering greatly on the cross, at the end of it, they cut his stomach open with a lance. The Romans did. And blood and water flowed out. John chapter 19, verse 34. And doctors today will tell you that this meant he had suffered hypovolemic shock and his body had been shutting down and dying, and the organs were starting to fail. And so the fact that his blood and water was separated at that time showed how far gone and how certain he was of death. And the cutting through by that lance was to make absolute certainty. And then he was wrapped up and put in a tomb with no medical attention. Now, would Jesus' disciples at this point be rubbing their hands together in glee and thinking up a false story to make that Jesus uh, was resurrected? And the answer is absolutely not because they lost all morale. Matthew chapter 26, verse 56 says that when he was arrested, his disciples all forsook him and fled. And a few verses later in Matthew 26, verses 69 to 75, Peter, his most passionate supporter, denied Jesus three times. His disciples gave up all hope on Jesus, which... Many of us Christians feel disappointed that they, that they did that, and in a sense I do too, but I actually think it was a good thing that they forsook him because it proved that they'd given up all hope and nothing could have convinced them to follow Jesus except his resurrection that and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, those who were guarding his tomb would have forfeited their own life if his body had been stolen. And in Acts chapter 12, verse 19, uh, Herod had the guards executed over an escape. And in Acts chapter 16, verses 24 to 28, when Paul and Silas 
There was an earthquake in their prison and they could have escaped and the jailer grabbed his sword and he was about to kill himself because he knew that he would have been killed if the prisoners had escaped. So the men guarding Jesus' tomb would have forfeited their lives. No amount of bribery will induce anyone to forfeit their life. And people that have forsaken Jesus and given up all hope would not have even attempted to even go near his grave. And here's the next thing. Today, we don't believe outdated views that women are less reliable than men. But in the first century AD, they believed that a woman's testimony was unreliable and not believable and not as credible as a man's testimony. So if they were going to concoct a story about a resurrection, they would talk about men being the first to see an empty tomb. Instead, Luke chapter 24, 1 to 12, talks about how it was women who found the empty tomb and they ran back to the disciples and excitedly told them, Jesus is risen, he, he's risen, he's alive. And the disciples being men of the first century AD, did not believe them. This again is a testimony to how accurate the scripture is, that if it was a concocted, made-up story, they would have had men. And then no body was ever produced of Jesus' corpse to prove that he wasn't resurrected. How could Jesus survive the crucifixion? Well, after being in hypovolemic shock, after being flogged 39 times, after bleeding severely from the crown of thorns, after having his, his stomach cut open and all the blood and water flowing out, Ah, well, he, and after the certainty that he was dead, he must have just said, oh, I'm okay, and just rolled back the tomb. No, no, it, it was a supernatural miracle, and that's all it could have been. So we know with absolute certainty that Jesus existed. We know that he was crucified with absolute certainty, and we know that he was killed. He died on that cross with absolute certainty. But do we know that he was resurrected from the dead with absolute certainty? What would make the Roman soldiers guarding the tomb flee and run away? Those Romans were men who feared their centurions and feared Pontius Pilate and feared the emperor and they would have done whatever they were told. There was only one thing that would have made those soldiers abandon their post and flee, and that is a divine vision. The Romans were superstitious people, and they worshipped the gods of Rome. They worshipped Jupiter, the high god. 
and Venus, the goddess of love, and a host of other gods and goddesses, and only a divine apparition of angels moving his tomb or telling them to leave would have compelled those soldiers to do that. And then we read about how the resurrected Christ appeared to the disciples and then to hundreds of people, including tax collectors. You see, many of the people that followed Jesus, that befriended him, that saw his miracles were tax collectors. And tax collectors do not hallucinate. It is true that individual people have been known to hallucinate, but you never ever get a whole crowd of people hallucinating at the same time. It's ludicrous. It requires a lot more faith to believe a whole crowd of people could hallucinate than they actually saw what they saw. We find that Jesus ate food. John chapter 21 verses 9 to 14, he went out fishing and... Acts chapter 1 verse 4. And these scriptures are especially written to debunk the Gnostic view that Jesus was just a spirit vision. And then Thomas was sceptical of Jesus' resurrection. He again thought it was a spirit vision he was seeing until he put his fingers in Jesus' palms, the palms of his hands, the holes in his hands. And then he said, my Lord and my God, John chapter 20, 26 to 29. And if anyone thinks that Jesus's resurrection was some fleeting vision of some blurry eyed, teary eyed, wailing women near his tomb. <laughs> uh, Acts chapter one, verse three tells us that he spent 40 days with the people after his resurrection I think 40 days is a pretty long enough time to know that you're talking to the physical body of a resurrected individual. But we finally get to another compelling evidence for the resurrection, and that was the death of the disciples. And almost all of Jesus' disciples died for their belief and claim of seeing the resurrected Christ. Now, at this point, the sceptics are going to point out and they're going to say, look at Islamic fundamentalists. Look at the war between Iran and Iraq where nearly a million boys in Iran were killed, where they ran over landmines believing they were going to go to paradise. They'll say, look at terrorists who uh, follow Islam, who believe they're going to get 72 virgins in paradise. These people die for something they believe in. Does that make it true? No, believe, dying for something you believe in doesn't make it true. However, there's a stark difference the disciples died for something they knew. They didn't just believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. They died 
because they knew it. They had actually put their hands inside the holes of Jesus' hands. They had felt and touched and been with the resurrected Christ. So it wasn't just some blind delusional faith of a terrorist. This was an actual thing they knew. Stephen was stoned to death. Peter was crucified upside down. Bartholomew was beaten and beheaded. Andrew was tied to an X-shaped cross and left to die. And Paul the Apostle was beheaded. And while Paul the Apostle did not meet the Christ just after his resurrection, he did meet Christ on the road to Damascus. And that was what made him an apostle, was witnessing the resurrected Christ. But they died for something they knew, not something they simply believed. So that, my friends, concludes the compelling evidence. I believe it requires a lot more faith to say that Jesus didn't exist It requires a lot more faith to say he was not crucified when the evidence is there that he was. It requires a lot more faith to say that he survived the crucifixion than that he died from it. And it requires a lot more faith to say that he was not resurrected. When we look at what happened to all the disciples of Jesus, they wouldn't have done that for something they knew was false. Thank you for listening. God bless.